very important that you all get this right. Fair, consistent, transparent. Mr. Emmert, you say that is your priorities, but I have to tell you, I was really disappointed with our meeting last week. And I think we're looking at a time when the NCAA has failed when it comes to women in sports, uh, sexual harassment, uh, sexual assault, sexual abuse that has occurred. And I, I think a question that must be going through a lot of minds of student athletes and their parents is how in the world are they going to be able to trust you to get this right? So we are looking at a time where now student athletes are going to be trying to figure out if they are better off going straight to the pros and skipping college because of situations like James Wiseman and because of a lack of transparency and a lack of consistency and a lack of fairness that is being doled out uh, to them. Uh, Mr. Emmert, uh, if there was a potential conflict of interest, why wasn't the university and the Wiseman family informed earlier in the process? I, I'm not involved in the details enough of that particular case to be able to answer your specific question. But you're the CEO and when there is um, a lack of transparency or subjectiveness, the objectivity should come to you. I yield back my time. Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, which is bigamateurism.com. And I also have been writing in a blog for over two years now, and my blog posts can be found at cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. Okay, in today's episode, we're going to do a little current events update. I've been up to my eyeballs in pay for play and laying out the history of the relationship between the athletes who provide the value in the big time college sports marketplace and the institutional and individual stakeholder beneficiaries. But I want to just touch on a few things that have happened. And as I've been working on those episodes on pay for play, I've been bookmarking some of the things that I have seen as I've been paying attention to news stories and some other things that really didn't make it into the media that I think really are really important in how the NCAA and the Power Five are positioning themselves or repositioning themselves in this perfect storm to try to achieve their original goals, which are to eliminate all external regulators and operate from the iron throne of college sports regulation so they can do whatever the heck they want to. And if they get those broad federal protections and immunities, including antitrust immunity and federal preemption of state laws and a provision under federal law that says athletes can't be deemed employees, then the athletes' rights movement, for all intents and purposes, will be over. So I want to look at some things that have happened over the last six weeks. And I'm going to start with the week of April 26th to April 30th, because there's some really interesting stuff and it just came in rapid succession. But before I get to that, I just want to say that we're expecting this decision in the Austin case any time now. 
And I was going back and doing some research on Board of Regents. I go back to that case again and again and again for various reasons, because it is so essential to understanding the business of big-time college sports. And I was on one of these uh, websites. I think it was uh, Oye or Justia. I can't remember which one. But I accessed the case through those websites. And they have a face page that shows some of the basic history of the case. And it jumped out to me that the timeline that Board of Regents was on in 1984 is almost identical to the timeline that Austin is on in 2021. So Board of Regents was argued on March 20th of 1984, and it was decided the opinion came out on June 2nd of 1984. The Austin case was argued on March 31st of 2021. And using the 84 timeline of when a decision will come out, I think it's going to come out in the next week to 10 days. And that obviously is going to be a consequential decision, no matter where the court lands. And if you want to take a look at my thinking on the Austin case, you can listen to episode 16 called the Austin Guessing Game, where I go through the various scenarios the likely scenarios, in my view, of what the court might do. So let's get to this week of April 26th to April 30th. On Monday, April 26th, a couple of really interesting things happened. First, a bill was reintroduced in the House by Ohio Republican Anthony Gonzalez and Missouri Democrat Emanuel Cleaver. And so it's a bipartisan bill, and it was virtually identical to a bill that Gonzalez and Cleaver introduced in the House on September 20th of 2020. And so you have to ask yourself, why is the bill being reintroduced? And there were some nominal changes that they made from the September 2020 version, but nothing material. This was essentially the same bill. And this bill is important because I think it's going to become the template for the NCAA's new strategy in Congress. Remember, the NCAA was having its way in the Senate, in a Republican-controlled Senate, prior to the Georgia special elections, which flipped the Senate from uh, Republican to Democrat. And Gonzalez and Cleaver's initial bill was five days after the last Senate hearing, ostensibly on name, image, and likeness, quote-unquote, compensation. And that September 15th hearing was held in the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, chaired by Lamar Alexander, who has since retired from the Senate. And Alexander was openly hostile to name, image, and likeness compensation. He was going old school and student athlete and honor and integrity and amateur ideal and academic integrity and all of this stuff. So five days after that, Gonzalez and Cleaver introduced this bill, and it is titled the Student Athlete Level Playing Field Act. And it got all kinds of media attention, and the NCAA was pumping it behind the scenes. And it is notable for a couple of reasons. First of all, it is the only bill that's been introduced in either the Senate or the House from the very beginning of this name, image, and likeness discussion that has bipartisan support. And the other thing that's important is that Emanuel Cleaver is African-American, 
And so you have the support of Democrats and Republicans and black members of Congress. And when you look at who the co-sponsors were, the original co-sponsors, it's really interesting. So there were seven. So you had Gonzalez introducing the bill. Then you had Cleaver, who was co-sponsoring it with Gonzalez. And then there were five other co-sponsors. You had Steve Stivers, who is a Republican of Ohio, and he has since resigned from the House to become the CEO of the Ohio Chamber of Commerce. Then you had Marsha Fudge, a Democrat of Ohio, and she's African-American, and she recently was nominated. I don't know if she's been confirmed, but she was nominated as the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development in the Biden administration. You had Rodney Davis, a Republican of Illinois. You had Colin Allred a Democrat of Texas. He's also African-American, and he played football at Baylor. You have Jeff Duncan, Republican of South Carolina. And just an interesting note here, Gonzalez's bill has a form of antitrust immunity or limitations on antitrust actions. And Duncan just recently went after baseball's antitrust exemption when Major League Baseball pulled the All-Star game out of Georgia because of Georgia's voting law. Interesting twist. And then you have Josh Gottheimer, a Democrat of New Jersey. So you have a really interesting mix of people, but this is the kind of the dream coalition from the NCAA standpoint because it neutralizes so many of the hot-button issues that have been percolating just beneath the surface in this name, image, and likeness debate, particularly as they relate to race and the disproportionate impact of NCAA compensation limits on African-American big-time football and men's basketball players. And the, the terms of this bill, it's important to take a look at some of the basic components of the bill. And I'm going to get into all of these name, image, and likeness bills, both those that have been introduced in Congress and also those that have been introduced in state legislatures. Gonzalez has been a point person for the NCAA. There is no question about that. And in these four hearings that occurred in the Senate between February and September of 2020, Gonzalez appeared at that very first hearing on February 11th, 2020, in a subcommittee of the Commerce Committee. And remember, the Commerce Committee has original jurisdiction over sports issues. The very first witness to testify was Anthony Gonzalez. And Gonzalez is a really appealing guy. He's earnest. He's down to earth. He seems practical. He's well-liked. And he's a perfect front person for NCAA interest. He played football at Ohio State. He played in the NFL. And he is a very likable guy. Again, he's just a, he's a perfect pitch man. But in his testimony, he played both sides of this coin, this, this classic yin and yang between, on the one hand, saying, yes, I support athletes' rights. And yes, the NCAA's compensation limits are overbroad, and these uh, athletes ought to be able to make some money off their name, image, and likeness. So that's the initial facade that Gonzalez painted in his congressional testimony. But then when you get into the details, all of a sudden he's talking about the student athlete and uh, the collegiate model and 
all of these things that are right down the list of NCAA talking points. So you have these two concepts that are in obvious and irreconcilable tension trying to be reconciled in a piece of legislation. And when you look at the bill itself, it has a number of features that are really pro-NCAA. So it has a provision that basically says that nothing in the act should be construed to confer an antitrust cause of action. It's not an outright antitrust immunity provision, but its intent, I believe, is to limit antitrust liability. Then it also has a provision that says that nothing in the act should affect the employment status of student athletes. It's a little ambiguous. It's not quite clear what Gonzalez was trying to achieve here, but it's my belief based on the structure of the bill and Gonzalez's testimony that the intent here is to protect the NCAA's conceptualization of the student athlete, suggesting that these athletes cannot be deemed employees. And then you also have, I think, what might be the most important component of the overall limitations of the law. And that is a federal preemption provision that would nullify any state law that attempted to regulate in any way in the name, image, and likeness market. So those three things, those three things are right down the list of the central planks of the NCAA's campaign for the Iron Throne of college sports regulation. So yeah, that's the starting point, okay? And then the Gonzalez bill does something that a lot of other bills do. The Wicker bill, the Roger Wicker bill that came out in December of 2020 does this. And I think the Moran bill, which came out in February of 2021, does this. They set up this independent commission that has the authority to set rules and make policy on name, image, and likeness. So the basic structure of these bills is that you have these broad principles, and then you have this commission that's put together that actually deals with the details. And in Gonzalez's bill, he has the, an organization called the Covered Athletic Organization Commission, which he refers to as the commission. But the commission would make recommendations of name, image, and likeness rules. It would make recommendations to certify or recognize credentialed athlete agents. It would provide a vehicle for independent dispute resolution. And it would make uh, recommendations for additional categories of endorsement contracts that are prohibited. Okay, so this goes really to limitations, not to athlete benefits. And this is where the rubber meets the road. And this is true of all of these bills that have some independent organization, some independent body that actually is going to be running the show. And under Gonzalez's bill, there will be 13 members of this commission who will be appointed from among the following pools of people. One, institutions of higher education, including athletics directors and coaches. Two, at least two individuals who are current or former student athletes who advocate for the interests of student athletes. Three, the National Collegiate Athletic Association, athletic conference administrators, and administrators of other covered athletics organizations. Four, professionals with expertise in sports marketing, contracting, and public relations. And five, individuals with expertise 
in corporate governance who are not associated with any covered athletic association. Okay, so that all looks great on paper, but boy, numbers one and three just jump out. So basically, this commission is going to include members who are the status quo stakeholder beneficiaries who have steadfastly refused to do anything on name, image, and likeness. And if you're bringing in people from the NCAA, that is a big red flag. That is a massive red flag. And how are those individuals going to be appointed? The Gonzalez bill says that three members will be appointed by the Speaker of the House of Representatives, three members appointed by the minority of the House of Representatives, and then three members by the majority leader of the Senate and three members by the minority leader of the Senate. And one member who will be the chair of the commission will be selected by the members who are appointed through the House and the Senate. But boy, the devil's going to be in the details there because that commission could very well look like and operate like nothing more than a subsidiary of the Power Five and the NCAA. And that is my belief here. That's what will happen here. And regardless of what Gonzalez and Cleaver and all these other co-sponsors believe that commission will look like, I would be shocked if the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries didn't have a majority and controlling voice. And then, let's see, there are some other provisions. It throws in all the we hate boosters uh, language and boosters are treated as the bad actors that the in-system stakeholders have portrayed them to be. And then you have the state preemption, the antitrust law provision, and then a student athlete not considered an employee. That's how their student athlete provision is characterized. But the actual language doesn't quite get to that point. I don't think it's ambiguous. But on the student athlete issue, it says Section D uh, of, of Section 7 or Sub D of Section 7 says student athlete not considered an employee. So basically, you have everything the NCAA wants. You have the very likely possibility that the NCAA and Power 5 interests will be running the show here. And that is not a pro-athlete bill. And you can't characterize it as a pro-athlete bill. And so this is just a perfect example of the smoke and mirror approach. And this is the best of all these bills. So when I go through and I break down the Rubio bill and I break down the Wicker bill and the Moran bill, and then these stealth bills that came before the July 22nd hearing in the Senate Judiciary Committee by the NCAA and the Power Five, you're going to see that this Gonzalez-Cleaver bill looks reasonable compared to those bills. And I think that's part of the strategy here. So you have this bill that I think is going to become the template for the NCAA now that it doesn't have absolute control in the Senate. And it is going to just be moved through as this shining example of bipartisanship and fairness. But on the back end, this could be a bill that does more to hurt revenue-producing athletes and all athletes, quite frankly, than it does to help them. And this is just classic misdirection. So that bill, that reintroduced bill comes out and you have to ask yourself, why? Why on April 26th? are Gonzalez and Cleaver reintroducing a bill that's virtually identical to the one that they released in September. Here's why. Because on the same day, the NCAA issues a statement on the Gonzalez-Cleaver bill. 
And here's what the NCAA says. So uh, the NCAA website has this media center and it has all these ridiculous press releases, most of which are self-congratulatory, but they also use that forum to either tacitly endorse things that are happening outside the NCAA or to tacitly criticize them. And this wasn't so tacit. This was an open endorsement of the Gonzalez-Cleaver bill, which leads me to believe that the NCAA sees this bill as a pathway to getting a vote in Congress. And if this comes out of the House in its current form and then it gets shifted over to the Senate, this bill sets the ceiling for name, image, and likeness compensation. And then the Senate, uh, there's no telling what's going to happen there, but it's very likely that the Senate would want this to be even more limiting than it already is. But here's what the NCAA says about this Gonzalez bill. The same day that it's introduced, and I have no doubt that this there was coordination there. So they say, we value the bipartisan nature of U.S. Representatives Gonzalez and Cleaver to again collaborate across party lines and sponsor legislation to support student-athletes. Their House bill will strengthen the college athlete experience and support the NCAA and its members to modernize name, image, and likeness rules, but not pay student-athletes or turn them into employees of their college or university. Moreover, the Gonzalez-Cleaver legislation would create a legal and legislative framework to preserve and enhance the mission of college sports that students can play the sports they love and earn a degree, often with a full scholarship and no debt, and set themselves up for a lifetime of success. We look forward to continuing to work with both lawmakers, their co-sponsors, and other members of Congress on these important measures. So that's just a tag team, right? So you have the Gonzalez-Cleaver bill. Then you have the NCAA coming in and saying, Yes, we support this. We endorse this. It has all the features that we want. And this is going to be our vehicle to getting the legislative framework to preserve and enhance the mission of college sports. That's it. And this legal framework, this goes back to the very beginning of the NCAA's federal state legislation working group, which was formed on May 14th of 2019 and has been the conduit for all of the NCAA's Iron Throne strategies. And those include everything that's in this Cleaver-Gonzalez bill, the antitrust immunity, federal preemption of state laws, and athletes can't be employees, all of this stuff. So they're reading from the same page here, and the NCAA wants everybody to know that this is a bipartisan bill. Now let's move to the very next day, April 27th, 2021. What happens on April 27th? The NCAA Board of Governors holds its quarterly meeting where it conducts its regular business. And some very interesting stuff happened at that meeting. But the NCAA on its website and its media center issues a release and it's titled Board Reaffirms Commitment to Updating Name, Image, and Likeness Rules. And they uh, talk about a couple of specific things, campus sexual violence and gender equity review. But the overarching message that the NCAA wants to come out of that quarterly meeting is that the board reaffirmed its commitment to updating name, image, and likeness rules. So it was name, image, and likeness. And it follows the release, the re-release of the Gonzalez and Cleaver bill. That's not coincidental. So here's what the NCAA says about its 
uh, commitment to modernizing NCAA rules around name, image, and likeness. It says, the NCAA and its members remain committed to providing a path for student athletes to benefit from name, image, and likeness opportunities. As we have previously noted, we recognize the importance of taking swift, appropriate action to modernize our rules. We must collaborate with Congress to create a legal and legislative framework at the federal level to support name, image, and likeness within the context of higher education. With several state laws taking effect this summer, we will continue efforts to adopt expanded name, image, and likeness opportunities as soon as advisable. And that last part's really important. As soon as advisable. What is the NCAA saying here? They're back to the very same propaganda that they were tossing out at the very beginning of this nil debate when they formed the working group, really as an effort to beat back the wave of state legislation. And that came just a few months before California passed the Fair Pay to Play Act. And there's no question that the original purpose of that working group was to deal with that legislation. And the NCAA was openly hostile to name, image, and likeness compensation. And it was just coming off an attorney's fees battle in O'Bannon where it spent $100 million to prevent athletes from getting a penny of name, image, and likeness compensation. And that attorney's fees litigation wasn't concluded until June of 2018. So we're less than a year from that in May of 2019. And if you think the NCAA changed its tune in nine months, you're kidding yourself. So, but this uh, statement is really, really interesting because it just sets the table for a jumpstart in Congress on the campaign that the NCAA initially launched, but then lost control of after the Georgia special elections on January 5th. So this meeting was also important because you have all this splashing around about name, image, and likeness and about the sexual assault issue and the gender equity issue, which was the result of some really embarrassing disclosures that came out of the Women's March Madness tournament regarding facilities disparities. But then the NCAA goes into a separate section in this statement called, quote-unquote, other business, as if this is just ministerial stuff. And the very first line item, and this is only a sentence, it's 15, 16 words, says, additionally, the board voted unanimously to extend NCAA President Mark Emmert's contract to December 31st, 2025. That is just a huge action by the NCAA Board of Governors. And you, you have to wonder what their motivations were. I, I have a theory, and I'll, I'll get to it in just a second. But my God, Mark Emmert has been the NCAA's worst enemy throughout the crisis that began in the COVID era. And every time Emmert opens his mouth, he just makes things worse. And really, that has been uh, the hallmark of Emmert's anti-leadership. It's not leadership. It's anti-leadership because he's always pointing the finger and it's always somebody else's fault. And he's always saying the NCAA president and the NCAA national office really have no independent authority and they're just doing the will of the people. All this stuff, the same stuff that Miles Brand was saying from very early in his tenure. But Emmert's a blame guy. And he has a massive ego, and his ego is just covering up all of these issues, and it's always about Emmert. 
but he's been a liability. And really, that became obvious through statements that were made in a private memorandum during COVID when the NCAA and the Power Five and uh, big-time football interests were talking about their strategy in Congress. And this memo was circulated among Power Five decision makers. And a primary concern was that the NCAA had a bad reputation in Congress. They called the NCAA the blue disc. So that's the NCAA logo, the blue disc, and it has NCAA in the middle. So it's a nickname for the NCAA. But they say the blue disc really has a bad name in Congress. But they also mentioned that Mark Emmert may not be the best messenger. And the reason for that is that Emmert just pisses people off left and right. And in that very first hearing in February of 2020, Marsha Blackburn, a senator from Tennessee, lit into Emmert. And these witnesses go around before they testify at congressional hearings, and they meet with the members of the committee to preview their testimony and the points of emphasis. And theoretically, it makes the hearing more efficient. But whatever happened in Emmert's meeting with Blackburn did not go down well with Blackburn. And she specifically referenced that. And it was clear from her words, from her voice tone, from her body language, that she didn't think a whole lot of Emmert's approach. And in my opening montage, the clips that you heard at the beginning of this episode were from Marsha Blackburn. And that was an exchange she had with Mark Emmert at the February 11th, 2020 hearings in the this subcommittee of commerce. And Blackburn, boy, you can really just hear it in her voice. And she was not fond of the NCAA and Mark Emmert's leadership. And the, there was an underlying story there that relates to a University of Memphis basketball recruit named James Wiseman, who was a phenomenal player. And he committed to Memphis and a Memphis former player, a famous one, Penny Hardaway, who was an NBA star, had given Wiseman's family some money to cover living expenses and moving expenses so that they could be close to Wiseman when he played at Memphis. And at the time, Hardaway was a high school coach. He had no connection to Memphis other than than the fact that he had donated. He had given generously to Memphis from his NBA earnings, which is a great thing, you would think. But the NCAA came in with all their kind of bad actor mentality and they're pointing the finger and they're saying that Hardaway was a booster and Hardaway later became the Memphis coach. So it was just this big ball of mess. But the NCAA came in as they did with Devin Ramsey and they ruined James Wiseman's life and his career. And he just, uh, they suspended him and he just basically opted out of his freshman year and went to the NBA. And that's what Blackburn was referring to when she said, the way that you think about your relationship to these athletes and your brutal approach to enforcement and infractions is going to lead these kids to go away from college. And you're saying that your whole purpose is about education and you make it almost impossible for these kids to want to come to get an education. And, and she just nailed it on that. And I really think 
that people don't understand just how dirty the NCAA is when it comes to controlling the labor force. And that's what this infractions and enforcement process is really all about, is controlling the labor force. And they do show trials. They don't have a big budget for enforcement and infractions. They come in and they do these show trials and they bring the hammer down hard. And a disproportionate number of the high value assets in the labor pool are African-American and they find themselves disproportionately in the crosshairs of NCAA enforcement and infractions. But in Blackburn's questions and comments in her voice, you know that she has seen the real NCAA. And once you have seen it, you cannot unsee it. And it's so hard to convince people and persuade them to open themselves to the possibility that the NCAA is the real bad actor here. And all their minions out there using the same tactics to preserve their economic interests. That's all that this is about. It has nothing to do with the integrity of college sports or education or any other garbage that the NCAA spews out. And Marsha Blackburn knows that. She's lived it. She's seen it. She got involved with the Wiseman case. And her comments and her voice tone and her anger, her simmering anger beneath those words is the product of what she knew, what she saw. And it's not pretty. That's the real NCAA. So that's an important dynamic. And if Mark Emmert's going to be the face of the NCAA, and he's going to go in and alienate the very people who have the authority to uh, dictate the future of college sports, you got a problem if you're the NCAA. So Emmert and then went into the NCAA Witness Protection Program as COVID played out and then the fall football issues were playing out. And he really had no control over that because of Board of Regents and the Power Five schools were going to make their own decisions. And there wasn't much he could do about that. But giving him a contract extension to 2025 and in a unanimous Board of Governors decision, boy, does that raise a lot of flags. And so there was an article that came out the day after. So this is on April 28th, Wednesday, April 28th. And this is by a guy named Alan Blender, who writes for the New York Times. And the title of the article is, By Extending Emmert's Deal, NCAA Shows Distance from College Sports Day to Day. And I've read read some stuff by Blender. He wrote a couple of articles back in this period between January 5th and January 11th, when the NCAA pulled the plug on voluntary name, image, and likeness rulemaking and offered as an excuse that they were getting some heat from the then Trump Justice Department. This is before there's a switch in the administration, after the election. But they claimed that the Trump Antitrust Division expressed concerns about the NCAA's name, image, and likeness proposal. And they thought there might be some anti-competitive features that needed to be addressed. And so they used that as an excuse for pulling the plug on uh, name, image, and likeness. And they did that at their uh, January meeting on January 11th. And that was a ruse. And I'm going to talk about that. I've written about that in detail as well, because the point person that was identified in the Justice Department and the Antitrust Division was a guy named Makan Del Harim who just happened to have been, before coming into the Trump administration, he worked for Brownstein Hyatt as a lobbyist. He was working for the firm that represents the NCAA, and uh, that's a very interesting story. But that whole excuse just didn't pass the smell test. And uh, Blender wrote a couple of articles on that, and he was involved in that. And it sounded to me at the time that he was on board promoting that false narrative. But in this article, he kind of gives the NCAA some grief. And he says that vote 
to extend Emmert's contract stunned the rest of the college sports world. And Blender goes on to say that the board's surprise move reflects a particular brand of stubbornness as the NCAA faces legacy-shaping, industry-defining reckonings on everything from the financial havoc of the coronavirus pandemic to the scope of the association's power. And apparently, Blinder tried to get a board of governors representative to speak with him, but the NCAA declined to make a board member available for an interview. And again, the vote was unanimous. So Blender also gets a couple of quotes, one from a Division I conference commissioner, didn't identify the conference, and then also from a Division I Power Five athletics director, neither of whom would speak uh, by identifying themselves. They wanted to remain anonymous. So the conference commissioner says, mind-boggling. Presidents seem hopelessly out of touch. And then the Power Five athletics director said that definitely a little shocked on the timing because of some of the recent issues, but nothing surprises me anymore out of Indianapolis. And remember also that Emmert is hired by the Board of Governors. He reports to the Board of Governors. And the relationship is not an arm's length relationship. And this vote just proves that. And then Blinder also points out something else, and this was really important. This folds into the timing of the announcement, I think, on Emmert's contract extension. Because I think his original contract was going to expire in 2023, so they didn't have to do anything at this meeting relative to Emmert's employment. And I think that was a symbolic message that they support Emmert because they really had no choice. And then the other thing that was happening is that you had some departures in the NCAA national office, including Donald Remy, who is the chief legal officer, because on April 27th, the very same day, Remy announces that he's leaving the NCAA to accept the nomination as President Biden's deputy secretary of veteran affairs. And that is huge because Remy has really been the point person on the legal strategy and probably the lobbying strategy and coordinating it and working with all these outside experts, working with all the lawyers and the antitrust suits, working with Brownstein Hyatt. And he's the puppet master at the NCAA national office on these issues. And his departure leaves a substantial hole. And Blinder also points out that one of the members of the NCAA Board of Governors, a quote-unquote independent member, was the Secretary of Veteran Affairs, and that's Dennis McDonough. And Blinder sizes up the NCAA strategy by saying, members may have been looking, members meaning the Board of Governors, may have been looking to give a dose of stability to the NCAA, which has seen an array of senior officials plan their departures for one reason or another. And then he, in a parenthetical, he talks about Remy. But I I think that's probably true. And I, I think the NCAA is reeling internally at the national office And the Board of Governors may have felt like they had no choice in some ways. And this is just perfect irony in bureaucracies and in politics that your arrogance and incompetence can become job security when you put the organization in a position where it has no choice but to double down on your leadership. And I think that's exactly what's happened 
with Amherst. Because imagine this. Imagine if the Board of Governors at this meeting had said, we don't have a good leadership model here, and Emmert has caused nothing but headaches. And everything was great when the money was rolling in and everybody was happy. But even then, Emmert was saying stupid stuff, and his ego was just getting the organization in trouble. But nobody paid that close attention to it because everybody was happy. And they're happy because they're making money. And we're in this bull market between uh, 2010 and, and COVID where the revenues are just going through the roof. But when things go bad, all of a sudden, Emmert's leadership is under the microscope. And boy, it doesn't look good on close inspection. So you just have this strange dynamic where if the NCAA Board of Governors had said, look, we need a, to chart a new course here, and Emmert's not our guy, and we're just going to retool our leadership team, that would be essentially waving the white flag at a time when they're still trying to present the facade of unity and control and mastery of all things in the regulatory realm of college sports. And I just don't think people who are paying close attention see it that way. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see how Emmert presents himself to the public going forward. And it's also important to remember that the NCAA is telling the United States Supreme Court, the United States Senate, and the United States House of Representatives that the NCAA and only the NCAA should sit on the iron throne of college sports regulation because they're the experts in college sports. They uh, understand how to run college sports. And having the national office fall apart at a time when you're trying to say that we're the only entity that can be in charge of college sports is a really, really bad look. So, so that takes you through April 28th. And then, just when you thought it was safe in this week of April 26th to April 30th, a story breaks out of Florida. And the Florida State Legislature, which had passed a name, image, and likeness law in June to great fanfare. And the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, was all over the media talking about what a great bill this was for student-athletes, how it was going to give Florida an advantage in the talent acquisition market, the recruiting market. And it was really an interesting presentation of the bill because the bill on its face really is NCAA-friendly, like almost all of these state nil laws. And it talks about amateurism and supporting the NCAA's basic philosophies and all that stuff. But it was hailed as this landmark bill. And this is not coincidental. Its effective date was July 1st of 2021. So remember the California law, which was passed in 2019, wasn't going into effect until 2023. And a lot of these state nil laws weren't going in effect until 2022 or 2023. And the ostensible reason for that was that it was supposed to give the NCAA time to do the right thing as it's been promising to do for years on reconciling its amateurism-based compensation limits with the realities of the business model in the 21st century. And of course, they have done nothing. It's my belief, and I'm going to talk about this in separate episodes, that this Florida law, and the Florida legislature is all Republican, the governor's office is Republican, it's hardcore Republican, right down the line of the NCAA interests that they were trying to cultivate in the Senate before the flip on January 5th. So the state of Florida was working in conjunction with the NCAA and the Power Five, that's my belief, 
And the reason that bill went into effect early and July 1st, 2021 was the earliest effective date of any of these bills, was to push something in Congress. They wanted Congress to feel the heat of the chaos that the NCAA was predicting over all these conflicting name, image, and likeness laws. And the date being pushed up to July 1st of 2021 put enormous pressure on the Senate, at least the NCAA thought so, to get something done. And then if they didn't get anything done, it's my belief that the NCAA was going to file a lawsuit against the state of Florida because they don't want to sue California, which is hostile to the NCAA's interest, or more hostile at least. Florida is a friendly form. They're going to sue under the Dormant Commerce Clause to basically get through federal litigation what they may not have been able to get through congressional action, and that is the preemption of or the elimination of all of these state name, image, and likeness laws. I've talked about that a, a little, and I'm going to talk about it in more detail in another episode. But then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there is an amendment tacked on to a bill on charter schools, a bill that has absolutely nothing to do with college athletics or name, image, and likeness. There was an amendment quietly tacked on at the very end of the debate on the charter school bill that would have moved the effective date of Florida's name, image, and likeness law to 2022. And it was sneaky. It was just sneaky. But it it got exposed. And then there was outrage among interested parties in Florida. You had athletes crying foul. You had some big-time coaches crying foul, coaches who probably believed they actually were going to get the benefit of that law and and they were going to be able to achieve a competitive advantage in in the recruiting process. But there was outrage and then no intelligent justification for it. Something was happening behind the scenes there. I, I have my theories on that. And I think it probably suggests that the NCAA and the Power Five, they simply don't know what to do next. And they wanted to buy a little more time because we don't have the Austin decision. And we don't know, you know, how the NCAA's lawyers are advising them on the feasibility and the likelihood of success under a dormant commerce clause theory. And the reasoning that the Supreme Court uses in Austin will give them some insight there because a dormant commerce clause lawsuit against the state of Florida could very well wind up in the U.S. Supreme Court or against uh, California or any state that has passed a name, image, and likeness law. So I think they really need to know how the Supreme Court is viewing their basic business model. And they don't know that yet. So you buy a little more time, and then you can just reassess as more information comes in. But almost immediately, the legislature in Florida pulled back that amendment. They pulled that amendment out of the charter school bill. So as of today... The Florida law is set to go into effect on July 1st. But boy, that was an amazing move. And it just took really uh, extraordinary moxie for Florida to try to pull that off. And there was nothing from DeSantis. Where's DeSantis on this? He's the cheerleader back in June of 2020 when this law is passed. And all of a sudden, when it's going to be pulled, essentially, at least for another year, He has nothing to say. Why is that? I don't know. Your guess may be as good as mine. So that week is just an extraordinary week. And I think that the sum total of it suggests to me that the NCAA is going to be going back to Congress and is working diligently behind the scenes 
And as I've said in prior episodes, this debate in the Senate, even though the Republicans don't control the Senate and the NCAA lost their built-in advantage there, this could be viewed really through the lens of power five political interests, not necessarily NCAA interests on the one hand or athlete interests on the other. And if that's the case, and I believe that is the case, and I think that's what the NCAA's lobbyists are focusing on right now, if you just get a small handful of Democrat senators to agree on some of the basic principles that are in that Gonzalez-Cleaver bill, you have a formula for this federal legislative framework the NCAA has been talking about for a couple of years now that really brings this stealth, iron throne, regulatory power grab into reality and then the athletes' rights movement for all intents and purposes is over. And what you're going to be left with are these Mickey Mouse nil changes where these athletes might be able to do some social influencing. And it's going to be a very small market that deprives the athletes of recognizing their full market potential. And that's what all these name, image, and likeness bills do. The starting point is protecting the institutional interests and protecting the quote-unquote integrity of college sports and then having all these draconian limitations and disclosures and reporting requirements and all of these things that make it almost impossible for these athletes to make meaningful money from their name, image, and likeness. Whatever's left over after all those limitations are in place and all those institutional status quo interests are protected, that's your nil market. And when you look at these bills, there isn't a whole lot left after all of those interests have been protected. So then let's see what else has happened in the last six weeks. Now we're moving into May. And we're out of this week of April 26th to the 30th. And all of a sudden, then the NCAA is saying, wait a minute, we're going to renew our voluntary rulemaking and we want to have something in place in June or July. Where did that come from? And what's changed since January when they pulled the plug on voluntary rules making because of these antitrust concerns? And has the Biden administration treated those concerns less seriously than the NCAA claimed the Trump administration treated them? That seems unlikely to me. So there's no discussion about why things have changed that required them to uh, pull the plug in January. And all of a sudden, a couple of months later, in April and May, they're talking about ramping up their voluntary rulemaking again and having the Division I Council pass its legislation. And I'm going to talk about that legislation. And it is, again, just a joke because it is way more limitation than opportunity. And it is built around all of the NCAA's basic principles of compensation limits. And this is back to what Condoleezza Rice said when they looked at name, image, and likeness in the Commission on College Basketball Inquiry. And she just said, look, I I don't know how you come up with any meaningful nil benefits within the confines of the collegiate model. And the NCAA's name, image, and likeness compensation rules changes are built around the collegiate model. It's just, it's nonsensical. But that's what they're going to try to put out there. And they're going to make a big splash and make it seem like they're doing something good for the athletes. But there's an Associated Press article which talks about this new strategy to roll out the voluntary rulemaking. It's stated May 19th of 2021. There's not an individual author identified. This is just an Associated Press wire story that includes so many of the NCAA's false narratives. And it's not very long, but it's really interesting in that regard. And uh, let's see, they say 
that the NCAA has been trying to change its rules regarding nil and compensation for athletes. But the process has bogged down under scrutiny from the Department of Justice. But they say absolutely nothing about what's changed. Is there less scrutiny now? Do they now have the green light from the Justice Department? Where's that story? We don't have that. And then it says the NCAA is involved in a U.S. Supreme Court antitrust case that could impact ways athletes can be compensated. And then it says dozens of states are forcing the issue with bills that will grant college athletes nil rights as soon as this summer. And then this throwaway sentence at the very end is just uh, 10, 11 words. There are also efforts to put a federal law in place. That's just a little, a little detail there. The detail that will basically transform college sports forever and eliminate the athletes' rights movement. Wow. So let's see. Then another thing happened in May, which is really important. And this was the announcement that the Pac-12 had hired a new conference commissioner. And the guy's name is George Klyavkov. I hope I pronounced that correctly. I'll, I'll use that pronunciation, Klyavkov. And remember that Larry Scott, who was the Pac-12 commissioner, really was the poster boy for how not to handle a crisis in big-time college sports. And he was putting his foot in his mouth and just showed that he had very little connection to the world that the athletes were living in. And remember, there were some Pac-12 athletes who had formed an organization to advocate for their interests, focusing primarily on safety when all the Power Five conferences were deciding whether to go forward with fall football. And there was enormous uncertainty surrounding COVID. And Scott was just dismissive of those complaints. He he made it clear he cared about one thing, and that's the money. And even though the Pac-12 initially decided not to play, they jumped on board just a month later or so because they saw their recruiting advantage and their pocketbooks just being flushed down the toilet. So anyway, the Pac-12 got rid of Scott. He still had a year on his contract, and who knows what the backstory is there. But they hired this guy, Klyavkov, and... Who is he? He is the president of entertainment and sports for MGM Resorts International. All right. The guy's resume, at least what's been reported in the media, shows that he has no connection to higher education. He has no connection to the academic sensibilities of the institutional stakeholders and the big time universities that are sponsoring big-time college sports. And he comes right from the belly of the sports entertainment industrial complex. He's at ground zero. And this is just an open admission by the Pac-12. If they don't give a damn about all these highfalutin, highbrow ideals about amateurism and the collegiate model and the student athlete and institutional integrity and the marriage of academics and big time college sports, all this propaganda. They're going for the guy who has the best insight into how to maximize revenue. And he says that explicitly. He talked about uh, he wants to look at non-conference games, kickoff times, increased revenue, and improved recruiting as ways to maximize revenue. And then he says, this is a direct quote, we know where our bread is buttered. We're focused on the revenue sports and winning in football and men's basketball. And you're right back to Miles 
Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model, where you exploit the ever-living hell out of those two sports so that you can take that money and put it into a bunch of rich white guys' pockets and these multimillionaires. Scott was making $5 million a year when he left the, the Pac-12. And then you take what's left over and you shift it over to downstream beneficiaries, non-revenue sports, and all these ridiculous administrative positions and salaries. And you do that in a way that you can claim is consistent with your nonprofit mission as an education nonprofit. And here is what one of the, this committee of, of Pac-12 presidents who used a private headhunting firm to lead the job search. But a guy, let's see, this is Michael Schill, who's the president at Oregon. He says, George is a visionary leader with an extraordinary background as a pioneering sports, entertainment, and digital media executive. And we are delighted and honored that he has agreed to become our next Pac-12 commissioner. Yeah. So when you look at the evolution of the types of people that have been brought into the Power Five commissioner's offices, you see a clear trend away from connections to the universities and to people who are really at the epicenter of the sports and entertainment industrial complex. And back in that 2006 speech that Miles Brand gave at the National Press Club that I talked about, one of the questions in the Q&A was whether it might make sense to have the athletics directors and the people at the institutional level, they don't, I don't know if they talked about it specifically in the context of conference commissioners, but the, these people in decision-making positions at the administrative level have a business background. And Brand said, yes, that's an important thing. And it was interesting because that goes back to 2006. But now you see that being just brought out openly into the way that the institutional stakeholders are thinking about who should be making the decisions and what their values should be and what they should be prioritizing. And with this PAC-12 decision, it is about the money, the money, the money, and more money. That's it. And then there's another thing that I just bookmarked in the last six weeks that I just wanted to mention. And Stanford University eliminated 11 varsity sports during COVID as a cost-cutting measure. And that was a controversial decision, and they were all obviously non-revenue sports. And this really points to the misconception that the Power Five have propagated, that unless they can pay for all of their athletics budget from revenue generated by football and men's basketball, then the university is simply not going to subsidize the rest of the athletics program. So again, you're back to the Miles Brand conceptualization of the collegiate model and taking money from football, men's basketball, and funding all these other initiatives. And the message that Stanford was sending, and it's consistent with how the Power Five views the business model, is that they're not going to really wrestle with whether the university, independent of the athletics department and independent of football and men's basketball revenue, are going to fund sports that aren't paying for themselves. And as I've said in prior episodes, that is the business model for 95% of the NCAA 
which doesn't make money, which doesn't have a big time football or men's basketball product that can generate revenue. So all of these schools have to decide at the institutional level whether they're going to pay for their athletics programs out of general operating expenses. And that's a values-based decision. Stanford cut these 11 sports. Of all of the, the products across the NCAA in all three divisions, Stanford University is as well positioned as any institution to pay for these additional non-revenue sports out of general university funds, but they just chopped them off. And, and again, it, it, that's because the thinking in the Power Five is and that money's got to come from football and men's basketball. If there's not enough to go around and we're going to lose money because of COVID, then we have to cut these sports. So anyway, these athletes had been trying to raise money and the alumni groups were supporting them. And there was a lot of pressure on Stanford and they really were dragging their feet. And then a couple of lawsuits were filed on May 12th against Stanford. One was claiming breach of contract and saying that the uh, university had promised these athletes that they were going to continue the sports and that their decision to eliminate them constituted a breach of contract. Guess who the plaintiff's lawyers were in that case? Jeffrey Kessler and, and his firm. And then there was a separate suit, a Title IX suit, that claimed that there was a disproportionate impact on women's sports in the decision to eliminate these sports teams. Within days, Stanford reversed its decision and reinstated all 11 sports. And you have to ask yourself, if the original decision was because you couldn't afford to do this, you couldn't afford to underwrite these 11 sports because you were seeing decreased revenue in your cash cows. Where'd the money come from? Why did you change your mind? And there wasn't an intelligent explanation. At least I haven't done a lot of research on the follow-up there. But the, the, the point is that the, these big universities are making all these decisions within this view of big time college sports is just a false view and completely outside of the mainstream of the rest of the college sports industry. And let's see, then, and this is just a couple of weeks ago, the power conferences were uh, releasing their Form 990 nonprofit tax returns, which require them to basically list their revenues, their expenses, and a snapshot of what kind of a year the Power Five conferences had. And remember that the Power Five conference Form 990s only go to conference revenue. There's a, a whole other category of substantial revenue at the institutional level from ticket sales and home games and concessions and all the other ways that they market their sports products. But this just goes to the revenue that comes through the conference. But they were claiming, the Power Five were claiming that the sky is falling. And that was, that's what Stanford was saying when it eliminated those 11 sports. And we don't have enough money. And this is going to be the end of college sports as we know it. And we're never going to recover from this. But the financial uh, information provided for the most recent tax returns that they made public that run through June of 2020. So this captures, I believe, the lost revenue from the March Madness tournament. But it doesn't really show what the impact was of, of fall football, and that remains to be seen. But on its face, through June, th those five conferences actually made $11 million more in fiscal 2020, and the total amount was about $3 billion than they made in 2019. So they, they didn't lose revenue in that period of time. But 
the title of an article I'm looking at here, and this is out of USA Today, but the title of this article is Power 5 Conference Revenues Slowed by COVID-19 Pandemic Tax Records Show. But the title should be, Despite Fears of Lost Revenue Because of COVID, Power 5 Conferences Increase Revenue. That's the story. And it's not much, but that's the truth. And then the last thing that I want to talk about in this uh, six-week period. And this was, uh, I guess, around May 27th that this story broke. And two senators, Chris Murphy of Connecticut and Bernie Sanders of Vermont. And Murphy is a Democrat and Sanders is on paper an independent, but he, as we well know, he is far left. They introduced a bill in the Senate that would have amended federal labor laws to require that revenue-producing athletes or athletes that met certain uh, criteria were deemed employees of their universities. And the name of the bill is the College Athlete Right to Organize Act. And this goes straight to this whole discussion about whether revenue-producing athletes are students or employees. And again, as I discussed when I talked about the Northwestern case a few episodes ago, that is a completely false dilemma because you can be both students and employees. And student is not the opposite of employee. Those are not mutually exclusive. And the NCAA just has been so successful in propagandizing that myth. So Sanders and Murphy, they want to say under federal law what the truth is, the truth of the relationship, not what the NCAA calls it or how they label it and how they've propagandized it since the 1950s when Walter Byers invented the term student athlete to avoid workers' compensation liability. And when you look at the facts of the true relationship, as the uh, Regional Labor Relations Board did in the Northwestern case in 2014, you cannot come to any other intelligent conclusion but that these athletes are employees. They are not primarily students, and they certainly aren't exclusively students, as the NCAA so dishonestly claims. They are employees. And applying any fact-based test on whether or not somebody is an employee, it's not even a close case. And that was clear from the, the Regional Labor Relations Board's decision that these guys are working more than full-time jobs. So they would just want to make that explicitly clear. They're, of all these bills that have been introduced in the Senate, in the House, or in these state legislatures, this is the first bill that actually speaks the truth. Because it says these guys are employees. Of course they're employees. And the NCAA just doesn't want anybody looking at the evidence. They just want to use their labels. So what's interesting about that bill is that just as with the Gonzalez-Cleaver bill, the NCAA immediately put out a statement that supported the Gonzalez-Cleaver bill. As soon as this Murphy-Sanders bill was introduced, the NCAA puts out a statement condemning it. And here's what they say, and this just goes to the heart of the NCAA's bad faith on the fundamental relationship between the athletes who provide the value in the product and the institutional individual beneficiaries of that labor. 
The NCAA says college athletes are students and not employees of their college or university. This bill would directly undercut the purpose of college, earning a degree. The NCAA and its member schools support student-athletes through scholarships, many of which cover their full cost of education debt-free and numerous other benefits. NCAA members also are committed to modernizing name, image, and likeness rules so student-athletes can benefit from those opportunities but not become employees of their school. We will continue to work with members of Congress to focus on issues that align with our priorities. But turning student-athletes into union employees is not the answer. So this is just chock full of dishonesty. The the NCAA says the bill would directly undercut the purpose of college, earning a degree. How in the world does treating these athletes as employees nullify their status of students or somehow make them ineligible for a degree? It's ridiculous on its face. They can still be students and employees, and they can still get a degree. And again, this is the propaganda that the NCAA just takes for granted. They just say this as if it's revealed truth, and it's An absolute false statement. And then they say, the NCAA member schools, they support student-athletes through scholarships, many of which cover their full cost of attendance, debt-free, and numerous other benefits. This is the classic shout-down to athletes who want to be treated as free Americans, as any other American would be treated, under antitrust laws or under labor laws. And they're saying, sit down and shut the hell up. You have it so good. You get a scholarship that covers your full cost of education. You leave debt-free, numerous other benefits. The the NCAA and Power 5 use this tactic again and again, and I'm going to get into that when I go through the written testimony that was submitted in these hearings in 2020 and the live testimony. And you just hear about all these things the NCAA does for these athletes. But they forget that a lot of these athletes are doing the school a favor. The schools treat these athletes like the schools are doing them a favor by uh, giving them a scholarship. But there are 20, 30 schools who are aggressively recruiting these athletes, and they could attend any one of them. And the reason that they're recruiting them is because they are going to make money for the university and help them achieve all these things that universities crave. So that's just a false narrative. And then they, t- they talk about modernizing their rules, which they haven't done. There's nothing stopping them from doing that tomorrow. So that says loud and clear to anyone who's listening. This Murphy Sanders bill is bad news. But in fact, it is the only bill that speaks accurately to the true relationship between the athletes and the institutions. And there was an article in the Washington Post on May 27th, the same day the bill was introduced. And this is important because this shows, I think, the extent to which the NCAA narratives are embedded in the way that decision makers think about college sports. And this huge head start that the NCAA has in any discussion about changing the status quo business model. So in talking about this bill, the author says that the bill is unlikely to pass in the current Congress, which has shown little appetite for such legislation. A companion bill introduced by three House Democrats also has not found any Republican co-sponsors. Interesting, right? So that is the perception that this bill is radical. This is just a radical proposal. And in the NCAA's construction of reality, it it is radical. And when you reflect back to those Power Five memos and letters in 2013, prior to autonomy and laying the foundation for autonomy, they viewed as radical any 
external regulatory change imposed on them that would treat these athletes as free Americans. And that uh, includes them being treated uh, as employees under labor law, but also being treated as free Americans under laws of competition and liberty and economic liberty and freedom and all the things that all other Americans take for granted. But in, in this context, in this 2021 legislative context, all of a sudden, the one bill that actually makes sense is treated as dead on arrival. And you look at all these other bills, and the Rubio bill, the Wicker bill, the Moran bill, the NCAA and Power 5 proposals, they didn't have co-sponsors. But you didn't read in the media that those bills were outliers because they didn't have any other support or bipartisan support. Those were deemed as reasonable pieces of legislation that were worthy of consideration. And even though not a single hearing has been held on any specific proposal that's been introduced either in the House or the Senate, so we don't really know how the congressmen and women are going to respond to the actual terms of these bills. But in terms of how they're treated by the NCAA, treated by the media, and treated by in-system stakeholder beneficiaries, these Republican bills that have virtually no support outside of the people who authored them, they're treated as legitimate pieces of legislation. But this Sanders-Murphy bill is treated as just a fantasy, as a silly proposal. And that's how the NCAA wants it to be portrayed. But I agree that this bill really has little chance politically, but not because of its content, but because of its sponsors. And that's no criticism of Murphy or Sanders. But Murphy's from Connecticut. Sanders is from Vermont. Neither of those states has a Power 5 school in them. So these interests that are outside the Power 5, they really look like they're just howling at the moon. And they're not really meaningful power players because they simply don't have any political clout in the context of the changes to the existing business model in big-time college sports. And it's going to have to run through Power 5 states and Power 5 senators and Power 5 interests. And I think that the response to this bill tacitly reflects that. And when you go back and you look at all the senators who in August and September of 2020 were uh, pushing athletes' rights, almost all those senators came from states And they were all Democrat. All those Democrat senators came from states that didn't have a Power 5 school in them. There were a couple, Kamala Harris in California and Cory Booker in New Jersey, and I've talked about that. But the overall impact of that group of athletes' rights advocates in the Senate was really minimized by the fact that they aren't power players because they don't have power five conference schools in their states. And that's going to be an important dynamic going forward in what happens with with this Gonzalez-Cleaver bill. And I think that's going to be the template for what gets sent to the Senate and what's likely to come out of Congress. And that debate is not over. It's, it is far from over. Okay, so that's going to wrap it up on this current events 
discussion and it's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out and of course we're waiting for this Austin ruling. So in the next episodes I'm going to really launch into this perfect storm. I'm going to talk in much more detail about these name image and likeness laws and really try to do it in a categorical way. There are certain features that are common to all of these bills and then there are some that are included in some but not others and I want to use examples from each of these categories that I have to illustrate just how friendly all of these bills, even the ones that are pitched as pro-athlete, uh, those bills are in large part deferential to core NCAA values. And, and again, that speaks to the really breathtaking power that these principles have acquired over the years. So with that, we'll close out this episode. And I just want to thank you for joining. And I hope you will be back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.